folks, do you feel like everything these days is go, go, go? It's nonstop from work to friends to family and a million pressing issues. Sometimes you just need to take a playoff and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. Hey, it's that time of year in Minnesota again to get out on the lake, go to the cabin, sit back, watch some baseball. Coors Light is the perfect refreshment to chill during these summer months. There's only one beer out there that's made to chill. The mountains on the bottles and cans turn blue when your beer is cold, and that way you know it's time to chill. Hit that reset button with some mountain cold refreshment. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Coors Light is the one you should choose when you need to unwind. When you want to hit the reset button, reach for the beer that is made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Goal. From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapino's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair. Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that flung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire. Welcome to another episode of Purple Insider. Matthew Collar here and joining me, data scientist from Pro Football Focus, Eric Eager. What's up, Eric? Not a whole lot, man. What, we're a month away from training camp. We just had a starting quarterback sign with, uh, you know, the the biggest, uh, you know, um, dynasty we've seen in the league in a long time. Man, things are, things are okay, uh, but, you know, a little nervous for... Uh, you know, for the season. I just want to speak it into existence, I guess. Right, right, right. And, and training camp will start on July 28th. Everyone will be safe and we'll have a normal 2020 season. It's been keeping me sane to be able to talk about the 2020 season all summer long. And we're almost there to the point where we get to training camp. And America has not really come along and done a lot to help us here. Um, to have football, but it seems like they're going to push forward. Let, let me ask you real quick before we get into your five most underrated Vikings of the last 30 years, which is why you're on, uh, ask about Cam Newton because um, Cam going to the Patriots just sort of screams Kurt Warner's second run, Randall Cunningham coming to the Vikings. Like we've seen this movie before a number of times, but there's also the part that Cam Newton has not been the MVP in the league in a very long time, and he's been beat up multiple seasons. I've always thought, Eric, that Cam Newton has a unique will 
to be successful. Like he is just super, super driven and he is a physical freak. And every player that I've talked to has talked about how smart he is at the line of scrimmage and, and commanding an offense and all those things. So I've always been a cam believer, but there are a lot of injuries here that he's going to have to overcome to be great with the New England Patriots. Yeah. I mean, I, I like those, those names that you brought out there. Interestingly though, I mean, Kurt Warner signed with the Cardinals sat on the, who started for a year, was replaced by Matt Liner, sat on the bench for a year, then came back. You know, like it, it, it's a little bit more messy than that. And then Randall Cunningham, you know, came in as a backup for Minnesota uh, and then only got a chance. And Brad Johnson injured his, uh, I think, like his thumb uh, or something or leg or whatever in 98. Um, you know, and, and there's, you know, not to compare these two, but I brought this guy up on the podcast. It kind of also smells a little bit like Kerry Collins going to like the Tennessee Titans at first. And then going to the Colts when they had the year where, uh, you know, Peyton Manning was hurt. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm obviously, I think it makes them the favorite. I'm bearish on Josh Allen. Uh, I, I think that there's a little something there, there with Sam Darnold. Uh, and obviously I, I'm, you know, pretty optimistic about the Dolphins and their future. So when you look at, you know, the, the division, I think the New England Patriots become the favorite here, but it's, it's not overwhelmingly so. And I think there's a, there's, you know, I, I think everybody's a little bit wrong about Cam. The people who think he's a complete bum, I think are missing the point. But the, you know, if we expect him to be an MVP in New England, I think we're going to be uh, a little disappointed. Yeah. I also think that so much of what he does will depend on whether he can still run in somewhat of the same manner with Randall Cunningham. He was always an unbelievable passer. And then he was put in an offensive situation in Minnesota where he could throw to Randy Moss. And if he didn't want to throw to Randy Moss, he could check down to Robert Smith or, you know, he could throw underneath to Chris Carter or Jake Reed or whatever he wanted to do. That is not going to be the situation for Cam Newton. He is not stepping into a, three deep type of uh, spot for his weapons. It's going to be a lot more put on his shoulders if that offense is going to succeed. And I wonder if they try to have a don't turn the ball over, you know, get uh, short passes out of the backfield, into the slot, things like that with Cam, and then hope that a big play comes about every once in a while and they play really good defense because they are coming off a year where they were one of the best defenses in the NFL. I am at least intrigued because what we've had this offseason is kind of like a Madden offseason. Normally, you would not see this much shuffling of quarterbacks in different places, but it's been wild. And Cam to the Patriots is one of those moves that it's Belichick playing at a different level of personnel, not just game planning, than a lot of other people. Other people would be scared of a high ceiling, low floor type of move like signing Cam Newton. So instead, they pick Nick Foles. Or they pick, you know, Tyrod Taylor to start and Justin mm-hmm. Herbert. Like those are not better moves than having Cam Newton in my mind. Yeah, I mean it's sort of afraid to succeed, right? And you know we see that a lot. You know people will go for the known average, although I think it's a little even steep to assume that Nick Foles will be average with Chicago, uh, or Andy Dalton will be average with you know the uh, Dallas Cowboys, so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean. The the thing with Cam, and it's going to be tricky, is that, you know, last season he wasn't able to run. He had negative yards rushing during the first two weeks. And when he can't do that, it's hard for him to be efficient throwing the football. 
um, when he can run and he can be efficient throwing the football, then they, they can be good. The, my, my issue with New England is their targets didn't get any better over the offseason. So um, if, he, if, if, he, if those players can't win in two and a half seconds or less the way that they did in Carolina his one year with North Turner, um, then that's going to be a problem. And, and so we'll, we'll, it remains to be seen sort of like what will happen there. At very least, it gave us a lot of fun at the end of June where we're usually not getting big right. moves like this. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot of other moves that start to roll in because people can finally get on planes and go visit facilities, things like that, that there are still trades out there to be had and there are still a lot of free agents who are very good at football that are sitting home without teams so far. Logan Ryan, Larry Warford, a couple of names of players who are proven and should have jobs, but they don't yet. Um, before we get to your five most underrated Vikings, one more thing. There were Desmond King rumors because Jaleel Johnson tweeted the letters DK and they went to the same college. There was also Jeremy Fowler put out a sort of mock trade of Riley Reed for Desmond King. I haven't really dove deep into it because I don't think there's anything actually there in terms of reporting to get onto for any reason to talk about it. Aside from it does make a heck of a lot of sense for the Minnesota Vikings to acquire a cornerback. And whether it's him or it's Denard from Cincinnati, who's still a free agent, or whether it's Logan Ryan, going into this year where they still want to win and could win the division because Nick Foles is Chicago's quarterback, it would make a lot of sense to have one more corner who is a veteran and is proven, especially if it's a slot guy. That's what they really don't have is a true slot guy like Desmond King. Yep, and that you know that's why it makes a lot of sense. He's been you know a top twenty-five player in the secondary since he entered the league. He has kick return ability. Um, he's really good in the slot, as you said. He can come off the edge and blitz. He can cover you know tight ends and slot receivers, uh, and he can even play a little bit of safety. And I think that's where they're thinking of playing him this this season in in Los Angeles if he were to stay. Uh, you know, the the issue is is okay if you sign him, you you trade for him. Do you sign him? You have twelve and a half million in cap space, uh, or is he a one-year rental type of thing? Uh, you know, the Vikings send a lot of mixed messages this off-season. You know, with the Kirk Cousins signing making them look like they want to win now, and then the you know trading Stephon Diggs and drafting fifteen players making them look like they want to be sort of like a, a future team. Uh, Desmond King, uh, a trade there would sort of be splitting the difference. So I, I would I would welcome it. You know, if I'm a Vikings fan, but. Um, it, it, I don't see it happening, uh, you know, but it would be fun if it did. I also think that Los Angeles doesn't see themselves as a team that's just going to tank. Um, they want to be competitive, although maybe if there was that Riley Reef trade, Los Angeles Chargers have not had a good offensive line since uh, LaDainian Tomlinson was there maybe. Okay, mm-hmm. let's, let's get into your list, though, because we're on the same page on that. Is I'd love to talk about a trade, but there's no report – that he's on the trade block or that there's actual conversations going on. It's just one tweet from Jaleel Johnson with some eyeball emojis, which I respect and enjoy, but Mm -hmm. that's not a trade rumor yet. Uh, It hasn't reached that status. So let's count them down. I was talking to you about this. You and I both like to watch old games and one of the best eras to watch is that early 90s where there's so many players that kind of got left behind even Chris Dolman it took longer than it should for him to get to the Hall of Fame or to get the recognition that he deserved players like that um 
no Hall of Famers, though, allowed on your underrated lists. So you cannot include someone like Chris Dolman. But uh, yep. let's, let's, let's start the countdown because you are a connoisseur of watching old games. And if you have anyone on the current roster, that's allowed too. So number five on your list, most underrated Vikings of the last 30 years. I don't have any players on the current list, but I do. So here's, here's somebody that I always had a fondness for. Um, he was a starting cornerback on three Vikings defenses that were number one in the league in yards allowed. He made three Pro Bowls. was a first-team All-Pro. Carl Lee, cornerback uh, out of Marshall. Um, yeah, I just I always thought that he was underrated. Uh, everybody gave, you know, the defensive line uh, and Joey Browner, Scott Studwell, all the credit for those defenses. And I think having a shutdown corner like Carl Lee in a, you know, press man system really helped them. Carl Lee uh, was not a guy that got a whole lot of attention, but ended up on my Hall of Very Good team for the Minnesota Vikings. I mean, the fact that he played with them for a really long time, was an all-pro, was multiple Pro Bowls. It's one of the only ways that we can really do it statistically is you have to include how many Pro Bowls the guy made when you're just looking back at the Pro Reference page, especially for defensive backs, because – it's amazing now how much we rely on PFF's data to tell us whether a defensive back was good or not, because it used to be, well, this guy's got a bunch of interceptions, but I remember having this in my mind that interceptions were not anything uh, or everything when I was in Buffalo and they had Antoine Winfield and Nate Clements and Nate Clements could not hold Antoine Winfield's cleats but Clements would take more risks and he would get five or six interceptions and people would think he was the better corner, but it was definitely not him versus Antoine Winfield. And I wonder about guys who played in the late eighties, early nineties, even up to 2000, how we should even really analyze them. I mean, Pro Bowls has to be a thing that we look at. Yeah. I, another one in, in along that vein was like uh, Delta O'Neill um, was a guy who had two seasons of nine interceptions or more, uh, one with Denver, one with Cincinnati. Um, but in, in season subsequent to that was benched because he just was a gambler that, you know, and, you know, Marcus Peters is kind of like that, although I think he's a little bit better. Lee was very much more of a, you know, Namdi Asamoah where they just don't throw aside. And I think one of the things that you can maybe do to sort of look at this and say, okay, well, what's the deal? Well, Lee was a starter basically for three, four years. And then in 88, he had eight interceptions and ran two of them back for touchdowns on a, a, def- a Vikings team that I believe their average margin of victory in 1988 was 11 points, which is a, an astronomical amount. So they were a great team. And then after that, Lee had two interceptions, two interceptions, one interception, two, three, and then he played for New Orleans for a year. So he, you know, one year they tested him, got burned, and then event- and then after that, he still made the Pro Bowl but didn't have a lot of interceptions, meaning the league really respected him. Uh, and that's really our proxy for knowing whether or not he was good at this point. Yeah, it's a good point. And the um, late 80s to early 90s Vikings defenses, you might have more players on your underrated list. But anytime I go back and watch the NFL films recaps or games from that era, it was almost Zimmer era-like in the fact that they would have a different quarterback for almost almost every yeah. year. I mean, sometimes every game you're running through different quarterbacks and yet relevant almost every single year. They're in the playoff hunt in 89. They're playing on the final day of the season to make the playoffs. And uh, 
you you still really couldn't get deep in the playoffs with a great defense, but that was what usually guided them. Yeah, for sure. And and uh, you know, even back then they 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 had a, an effective offense and they had a different quarterback make the Pro Bowl a couple times. Um, but you're right. I mean, when going up and it's just like today. I mean, when when push came to shove in the late '80s, they were just not good enough to beat the 49ers in the playoffs. And in the in the in the '90s, you know, they were not good enough to overcome Brett Favre and win the division. Uh, and you know, if the one year they did they did run good, uh, you know, in Vikings fashion, a team like Atlanta, it was their year to shine, much like it was for Philadelphia in 2017. So, uh, yeah, it's just frustrating. But those defenses were never the reason. And that brings me to my fourth most uh, underrated Viking, and he played for these same defenses, 100 career sacks. He Not all of them were with, were with Minnesota, but he, you know, was in, on a defensive line where he was a pro bowler, but he was not he'll, – he'll never be considered a Hall of Famer by any stretch. Um, hardware Hank Henry Thomas <laughs> is, is on my list as well. What I like about Henry Thomas is the way that he lined up. That nobody does this the anymore. The cock knows. He was, he was off to the side at like a 45-degree angle. I don't know why they did that. I've never asked anybody why the nose tackles of the day did not just line up straight toward who they were going to go smashing into. But it sure as heck was really good for Henry Thomas. This defensive line is preposterous in those days, especially when Millard had his couple of big seasons. You have Dolman, Millard and Henry Thomas on the same defensive line, and all of those guys could get 10-plus sacks at any season. Yeah, the 1989 Vikings, let me, let me make sure I have this right, had 71 sacks. Um, so you had, you had 21 by Chris Dolman, four in the last week of the season. Keith Millard was actually the defensive player of the year. He had 18. Um, Al Noga, who was a pretty good left end for them, had 11 and a half, and then Henry Thomas had nine. Thomas had, you know, basically seven to ten sacks every single year in his career. Again, playing that nose position. Uh, in, in classic Zimmer fashion even, you know, they were, you know, it's not like now where, you know, Limbaugh Joseph would play, you know, first and second down and come out on third down for somebody like, uh, you know, for somebody like Tom Johnson. Thomas and, and, and John Randall, Thomas and Keith Millard played every down. And that, you know, the fact that their sack totals were that way, every bit the more impressive given that, you know, I think, they they were a, a a new age defense in the sense that their goal was to get to the quarterback and maybe tackle the running back on the way there. And yet in 1994, the Vikings, you know, they had one of the best run defenses in league history. I think they surrendered less than a thousand yards that entire year. And that was Thomas's last year in Minnesota when he left for Detroit. Uh, the team got progressively worse on that side of the ball, even while keeping John Randall a Hall of Famer. Before we get back to the conversation, I want to remind you to go to SodaStick.com to get your original Minnesota sports-inspired goods. They just launched their partnership with Michelob Golden Light for the Mick Golden Light Fishing Club merch line. The logo includes a walleye chugging a beer, and they have it on shirts, hoodies, windbreakers, and more. If you haven't seen it yet, you definitely have to check it out. And also, we're going to hook you up with free shipping for your order. Just use the promo code Purple Insider for free shipping. That's SodaStick, S-O-T-A-S-T-I-C-K.com, original Minnesota sports-inspired goods, code Purple Insider for free shipping. Philosophically speaking, the big giant nose tackle, like Michael Pierce, 
I think that Joseph at his best could rush the passer. So he was a little bit different, and he could play three downs if you needed it to. 2017, he did. But Michael Pierce has never played 600 snaps in a season in his career. And I wonder if that position will just always have a space in football to get a guy who looks like a fire hydrant and stick him there right over the center, and that's just what you're going to do. Or if the ratio continues to lean toward pass, if teams just don't even bother having these guys anymore, maybe it's someone that comes off the bench. I know that Zimmer seems sees it as fundamental to his defense to be able to stop the run on first down, but if opponents are looking over and you have Michael Pierce and Shamar Stefan and saying, we'll just pass then. Uh, I, I wonder if that continues to change to the point where that's no longer a thing. Yeah, well, and especially if you know with only one edge defender of any renown, that you can, you know, make a pretty clean pocket and have your quarterback step up. Uh, those early down run plays are going to be more few and far between. I misspoke on the Vikings. They they gave up, in 1994, they gave up uh, 1090 yards on 3.1 yards per carry, which would which was one of the best defenses in Vikings history until you got to the Williams wall uh, of the three straight years where they led the league in run defense. Uh, but Still, still, still an awesome thing. And like I said, like when you have great all-around defensive linemen like that, you know, it's really hard to play offense. All right, number three on your list. Okay, number three on my list uh, is, and I get, I'm showing my, I'm showing my, um, my bias towards this. Um, but he, he's a guy that played free safety for the Vikings, uh, replaced one of the uh, most important players in in the eighties for the Vikings and Joey Browner. And that's Vincey Glenn. Okay. You're going to have to explain that one. So Vincey Glenn was a, so bad. So part of the reason I like this is because he emblem, he, he was emblematic of what the Vikings had to do because of the Herschel Walker trade. So Vincey Glenn was a, you know, he was a second round pick um, by the new England Patriots in a really weird way. He was traded four four weeks into his career. So 1986, drafted in the second round. So imagine the Vikings did that. They traded Brian O'Neill four weeks in. Um, <laughs> he goes to San Diego. He's, you know, they're starting free safety for them. They Back then, before real free agency, you had what was called Plan B, which is essentially you were able to – you had the rights to all your players, but you had to yield the rights of like 15 to 20 – I can't remember how many exactly. And so th- those players were what were called – plan B free agents, meaning you could sign them, but they were like restricted. And that was the only way that players could move teams without a trade. Um, so as you can imagine in 1989, when the Vikings traded Herschel Walker to the Dallas Cowboys for a bevy of draft picks, they weren't able to replenish talent on the roster all that easily. Dennis Green shows up to Minnesota in 1992. He gets Jack Del Rio as a plan B free agent. He gets uh, Roger Craig as a plan B free agent, a number of other players. Vincey Glenn was another one of those. And Glenn led the Vikings basically in interceptions for, you know, uh, 93 and 94 had, you know, was, was, was a great free safety from a hitter perspective uh, from a, you know, just like a, yeah, I think he intercepted Brett Favre like six times during his career as a Viking. Like he was just, you know, an all around great player. And again, in 19, you know, kept that defense afloat, even despite the fact the Vikings had basically no draft picks on that side of the ball for three years. Well, the uh, 
free agency point is really an interesting one because these teams were built on a lot of – in fact, the Vikings become classic for this even later on when free agency is a, is a thing. Um, but it's, a, it's just a Vikings-y Vikings thing to have good players from other teams that come to you late in their careers mm-hmm. and then play really well. And he didn't spend a ton of time with them. And, yes, you are showing your early 90s Vikings bias here with your list so far. Um, yeah. But that, that's an interesting point about um, the Herschel Walker trade and how they were able to build up these really great rosters, even sometimes with players that you wouldn't have expected. Although Glenn, I mean, he was a starter before. But even when he showed up in Minnesota, he didn't start all 16 games right away and then became their 16-game starter and was very good for them. And if you're going to build a defense that is as good as the early 90s Vikings defense is, it sort of takes random players like that. And I feel the same way about the current Vikings defense, that random pop-up players or guys that you acquire and don't have high expectations for and then turn out to be really good has to happen in order for you to have a very good defense. Yeah, and and, and that was and that was the thing. I mean, the the people, you know, Dennis Green was an interesting character, but he made the playoffs, uh, what was it, eight, seven out of nine years or eight out of ten years as a Vikings head coach. And despite the fact that when he took over the team, uh, they had, you know, basically the cupboard was bare. And, you know, it was really impressive the way that they rebuilt that roster um, and, and made some really tough moves. They traded Gary Zimmerman, who's a Hall of Fame left tackle, uh, got Todd Stucey. They traded Chris Dolman. You know, they traded, you know, there, there was a number of moves they had to make that were difficult moves. And despite that, you know, they were able to stay competitive and stay relevant. Uh, and a guy like Glenn, I, I thought it was always somebody who, uh, you know, was a, you know, a, uh, just a, a, you know, an emblematic you know, symbol of that uh, situation. And, and for my, uh, I'm just going to throw in my, my friend Solomon Wilcox played with him for one year, you know, in the intermediate time and said he's also a great person. So I, I, I kind of like that pick uh, as sort of an under the radar one. Um, I was going to go with number two. I, I threw Jake Reed out of this conversation because I do think Reed was a – he's too good to be underrated, I think. But um, interesting point about Jake Reed is that he was he was one of the picks that, that Dallas actually gave back to the Vikings in the Herschel Walker trade, which is kind of funny. Um, he, was, he was literally the only uh, good thing on the ledger for the Vikings there. But I'm going to go uh, and, and venture into the new uh, millennium here and go with Mo Williams at two. <laughs> uh, okay, so you've moved on from Gen X to Millennial uh, with this, with Mo Williams. Can we real quick though, talk about the running back position for the Vikings and the history of the running back position and what it was? When they trade for Herschel Walker, they think that that's what they really need. And maybe with teams back then – the, the running backs were always the centerpiece of the offense. Yep. And so you could understand it more than we would understand it now. If we looked at that trade now and someone did the same thing and gave up their whole draft for a running back who was only pretty good in Dallas and a kick returner, we would have our brains explode out of our skulls. At the time, you could see where they looked at it and said, you know what, our quarterback played is uh, pretty shaky here, and yeah. we don't have an answer at that position where someone's going to throw for, at the time, 4,000 yards a year would have been a huge deal if you could do that. We don't have this driving force of a passing offense. 
and we've got a, a couple of receiving weapons, but it's not like you had Randy Moss yet. And so you need that one guy with this great defense who can run and play defense and get you to the Super Bowl, just like Parcells did. The, um, the ghost of Parcells was always hanging over everyone, right? Like the 85 Bears, yeah. Parcells, you win with defense. If you weren't a team that had Joe Montana, then that's what you tried to do. So I've always kind of understood why the Vikings did that. What I never understood, and I'm sorry, we'll get to Mo Williams in a second, but what I never understood is why they used Herschel Walker different systematically than they should have. And I was watching an 89 broadcast on Monday Night Football, and you know it's Frank and Alan Dan, the great combination of Monday Night Football. And the whole game, Frank and Dan are talking about how, why are you running Herschel Walker this way? Why are you asking him to make reads and cuts? Why don't you just give him the ball and run him straight? And I, I never really understood it, why they didn't use him like that. And overall, he has like a decent career, a very good career, you would say. And then in Minnesota, of course, they couldn't find the right way to use him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the that entire thing shows you all you need to know about the running back position. So Herschel, Herschel comes in from – for one, Herschel played in the USFL for Donald Trump, and they weren't good. He, you know, he has still has the all-time record for yards gained in a season by a running back, but not even you couldn't even win in the USFL with that. And then he goes to Dallas. He start, you know, goes in '86. They miss the playoffs. I think '87 they narrowly missed the playoffs again. In '88 he rushes for 1,500 yards, but the Dallas Cowboys go three and 13. You know, he was second in the or first or second in the conference to Roger Craig, and that was the year that the Niners won the Super Bowl. But it was their worst Super Bowl team. The one year the Niners really leaned on Roger Craig was their worst year of winning Super Bowl. So all that is sort of emblematic. And then the Vikings in '87 drafted DJ Dozier in the first round out of Penn State, and he was bad. And that was really like the impetus for this entire thing. In 88, I said previously, they outscored their opponents by 11 points a game. And the glaring thing was their leading rusher was Darren Nelson with 380 yards, (laughs) 3.4 yards a carry. They averaged 3.6 yards a carry as a group. Now they had 1,800 rushing yards, but it was like seven guys with 150 or more or whatever, six guys, 150 or more. So they, you know, they, they go 11 and five. Interestingly, the only reason they don't win the division is because they lose to a four and 12 Packers team twice, um, including one, you know, sort of on the doorstep of the season. And then they beat Los Angeles Rams in the playoffs and they lose to the Niners in a game where they turn the ball over three times and rush for only 54 yards. And so they start the season a little slow in 89 and they gravitate towards that position and get Herschel Walker. That doesn't work. But the funniest thing about that is the next first-round draft pick the Vikings had, so they, they didn't have one in 89 through 1992. The first first-round draft pick that they have in 93, they take Robert Smith, a running back out of Ohio State. So they did not learn their lesson, um, but, but alas, they, you know, they, they got some good play out of Robert Smith. Robert Smith's backup for some time, Mo Williams, um, is just an interesting one in that he was a special teams player mostly in his first stint with Minnesota, 96 through 2000. He was the backup to Smith in 2000, but that was the only year Smith started all 16 games of his career. So he didn't really get any run. Then he loses a training camp battle with Doug Chapman in 01 to back up Michael Bennett, who's a rookie at the time, another first-round draft pick, Viking running back. And he goes to Baltimore, plays for Brian Billick, plays well enough where the Vikings sign him back in 02, 
And from then, he's one of the better all-around sort of backup running backs in the NFL. He scored, was it, 19 touchdowns on the ground, another four in the air. He had a season in 03 where he had 65 catches on 10 yards a catch. He was just a, a very good player for the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, and I think he, you know, I think he, he's forgotten because right when he leaves, Vikings go and get Peterson. They go and get Chester Taylor. Now it's Dalvin Cook. And he sort of gets lost in the shuffle, but, you know, he's a very good, uh, you know, Viking historically. And a part of one of the great moments in Viking history with Randy Moss yep. against the Denver Broncos. Uh, I interviewed Mo about this a few years ago where Culpepper launches it to Moss. He catches the ball. He's getting tackled and he flips it behind his head to Mo Williams, who walks into the end zone. And those players, again, for that type of era, uh, there were a lot of them for the Vikings, guys that you didn't necessarily think were going to be anything. Another guy that I talked to recently and hoping to have on the podcast sometime soon here is Kadri Ismail, who's the same way where he was a a turner at first and then he builds up his career. And later on in his career, he becomes a very good wide receiver to go along with his kick returning. Mo Williams is the same kind of deal where it's a, a special teamer that you don't really expect. And they used to carry a bunch of running backs and have them all play special teams because special teams used to be a thing that mattered with kick returns. And that's where I think of Mo also is teams used to have not one, but two kick returners. That they would yeah, have back standing there. next to each other. Yeah, and on the Madden games, you used to have to put in KR1 and KR2 for your two kick return guys that would be back there. And now we just don't even have kick returns. And I talked to Mo Williams not too long ago for an article about that, and he is uh, personally offended, deeply offended that the NFL does not have kick returns anymore. And that's where I think of Mo Williams. And it is cool. It's a cool story. It's one that we used to hear a lot of kick returners becoming full-time running backs and ending up having good careers. Uh, yep. Maybe someone like Charlie Garner starts off as a – I'm not 100% Steve sure. Smith's first play as a player in the NFL was running a kickoff back for a touchdown against the Vikings. In yeah, Oklahoma. yeah. Opportunity. Yeah. It used to give guys opportunity, and Mo Williams is one of those good stories. He wasn't any sort of high draft pick or anything else. Was not fast. Didn't have, like, major wheels or anything else like that. Didn't have one discernible big-time skill that would have made him a star player, but – he was just a good football player. All right, so uh, who else 68, on your list here? 68-yard touchdown pass from Culpepper to open the playoff win against Green Bay and Lambeau, I think is also one of the more memorable plays uh, of his career and, you know, just an, you know, an awesome, uh, you know, memory if you're a Vikings fan. Um, my last player is also a running back, but he is my kind of running back, and this is uh, Ampley, the Vikings third down back from – basically the Warren Moon era. Um, Lee was, let me look here, during his time in Minnesota, he caught basically two, you know, 160 passes in three seasons. Um, he set a Vikings record in 94 for the most catches in a playoff game with 11 against Chicago. Uh, was a, you know, just was a kick returner, punt returner. Uh, he went on to be the the St. Louis Rams MVP after leaving Minnesota because he went on to have more seasons of catching like 700, 800 yards worth of passes. But he's just like a, a player I think would be viewed a lot differently today in a league where, you know, throwing the ball to backs is a lot more, you know, thought of as a lot more efficient. Uh, but I always thought Amp Lee was such a great player for the Vikings during his time. 
Before we get back to the conversation, I want to remind you that there is no shortage of action going on right now at our exclusive partners at betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit BetOnline.ag, use the promo code BLUEWIRE for a free welcome bonus, that's one word, Blue Wire. Bet online, your online wagering experts. The other guy that comes to mind who's very similar like that is David Palmer, who was a do it all yeah. type of guy. And being able to throw it to the running backs out of the backfield, um, somebody who could catch 75, 80 passes is a pretty great skill. And even going way back, Chuck Foreman is one of the original guys who becomes that dual threat running back. What always comes to mind for me is how many of these players who were thought of as scat backs because, well, they can't pass protect or, you know, they can't get us three yards in a cloud of dust in, in the on first down. How many of them would have been full-time star uh, NFL running backs in today's game? And David Palmer and Amp Lee, both are guys that I think would have been used even more and would have been thought of as some of the better players because they would be McCaffrey light like Christian McCaffrey, not the first running back in NFL history to catch the ball to the backfield. Exactly. And, and yeah. And now that, you know, you're not requiring guys to run up in the hole so much, you know, guys like Ronnie Harmon would probably be, you know, former bills and chargers running back would probably be a star. I mean, guys who are starters who are more like that, like Thurman Thomas and Marshall Falk, even at fault, you know, both of those guys are hall of famers. I think they would be, you know, even, even more highly considered in, in today's game. Um, but, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it was always funny. Ampley had a 100-yard game against the Vikings in 92, starting for an injured Ricky Waters. And, of course, like Dennis Green rushed to sign him when immediately he became a free agent. It's sort of a, a fun, like, you know, symbol of sort of what the, you know, what the league, you know, was like back then. Um, and, you know, I always thought it was great because, you know, the, those Vikings teams, I think eight of 20 games, during like 94, 95 went into overtime. And a lot of those games were Warren Moon, you know, they get behind and Warren would have to throw the ball 70 times. And it was just, you know, put Amp Lee in the shotgun next to Moon and throw to, you know, Reed, Carter, Ismail. And then, you know, Lee was certainly a guy that dealt, you know, did a really good job with those openings. I love the list. And I want to ask who you think on this current roster or in the Mike Zimmer era could be considered an underrated player. Now on the podcast, and you and I, we've talked about every player up and down the entire roster 50 times, of course, mm-hmm. over, the, over the Zimmer era. But on a bigger scale perspective from the outside world, is there somebody that comes to mind over the last five, six years that did not get the attention or does not get the attention that they deserved from the national media that probably should? It's so interesting. I mean, you talk about, you know, PFF and, like, our influence over it. Like, I, I mean, Anthony Harris would have been this guy, right? And But now everybody knows he's good, and he gets a franchise tag. Eric Kendricks might have been this guy, but now everybody knows he's good, right? And he's a Pro Bowl linebacker. Um, I think <sighs> Tom Johnson, maybe. I think Tom Johnson's a good one. Um, I think, you know, if you go back a few years – um, 
you know, you, you, like let's let's just go with somebody like uh, Alexander Madison for now. I think that guy. I think he'll end up being a player that's going to be good for the Vikings, but people are going to underrate him or they're going to be disappointed by him because he's not Dalvin Cook. Uh, you know, when eventually he overtakes Dalvin Cook, you know, Cook leaves or something like that. But it's interesting now because I think we, there's so much attention on football now that we kind of ha- there aren't that many underrated players anymore, right? There's a few overrated players, but there aren't as many underrated players. I would say a guy. You know, maybe like, you know, maybe like Anthony Harris would have been that way, but we properly value that guy now. Maybe somebody like Trey Waynes. I'm not sure. I don't know what the opinion of him is. He's, you know, a good, not great player. Uh, What do you think? Mackenzie Alexander for a year would have been that guy. Uh, Terrence Newman got a lot of attention for being old, but the slot corner position, Captain Munerland, Terrence Newman, Mackenzie Alexander was always very good under Zimmer, and that was uh, his selection of players, partly guys who really fit in that role, and Terrence Newman moving roles from an outside corner for his entire career to playing nickel when he's 39 years old does not get enough attention on a number one defense of being something that was an incredible football accomplishment. But I'd love to see a list of guys who changed positions at age 39 Mm -hmm. in the NFL. He might be the only one ever unless there was a, a punter who got a couple of snaps at quarterback or something. I don't know how old Tom Tupo was when he was still taking <laughs> some reps at quarterback, but I can't think of any circumstance where you could switch roles that significantly. It's like playing an entirely different position. Nickel corner is almost like being a linebacker for somebody who is not of a, a really great size or anything like Terrence Newman or wasn't one of those smaller type of players that had really, really quick feet to match up with those guys in the slot and had great seasons. So Terrence Newman would probably be my answer for the player who gets underneath the radar in the Mike Zimmer era that was actually very good. Tom Johnson deserves a lot of credit there. And post-Sheldon Richardson, we saw that if you don't have that guy, that the interior rush is just not the same. And last year they were pretty severely missing that outside of third downs, but on first and second down, where Tom Johnson was playing 60 70% of snaps in 2017, a guy who was undrafted and then filled in a role and ultimately proved that he could be a full-time starter in the NFL. That's a pretty cool story. And Zimmer has a lot of those, where you're right, that Anthony Harris – is no longer underrated, especially when he gets franchise tagged. And then everyone starts to take note, like, wait a minute, they gave $11 million to this guy? Like, okay, we're going to have to look into it. Um, But Anthony Harris, another cool story of a guy that no one would have ever expected to be a star in the NFL and became one. I think think Joe Berger, maybe. That's my answer. Joe Berger, yeah. I I just thought of that one. Offensive lines that were generally brutal. Joe Berger. But he was was the one good player on the line. Yeah. Yep. And I will throw out there Jarius Wright for being Mm -hmm. somebody that was not really given a whole heck of a lot of attention. But in 2017, he ends up with, I want to say 17 catches and 15 or first downs or 20 catches and 17 or first downs that he seemed to be there in every big moment in the Minneapolis miracle game. He catches a 20 something yard pass late in the game to go down and set them up to score and he was not spectacular in any particular area, but he was going to be exactly where you wanted him to be when you wanted him to be there. 
I thought they made a mistake letting him go. I also thought they made a mistake not having him on the field more often. They tried the Laquan Treadwell number three receiver deal. I'm sure he was a better run blocker than Jarius was, but Jarius is better in every other area of being a wide receiver. And he deserved some kudos for his roles on their early teams. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even even in 2012 when he came off the bench, Percy Harvin got hurt. He made some plays that, you know, I think an offense whose best receiver was Jerome Simpson uh, really you, you, you know, needed him. Uh, and, and that, you know, that was, you know, big time for him. So, yeah, he's a good one as well. Um, it's so it's so fun to sort of think back and, you know, in, in 10 years, who will, how will we view the, these, uh, you know, modern day Vikings? Right, exactly. I'll throw one more out for you from the Favre era, which would be Chester Taylor, underrated Viking. Not given a whole lot of attention nationally. It's all about AP. But if it was a big third down, Chester Taylor was probably going to be out on the field there uh, in the backfield. People gave the Vikings a lot of flack for opting for Chester Taylor in 06 free agency instead of Edger and James, and it was 100% the right move. The, the Childress, Childress, you know, has a lot of faults. Um, but one thing that he did do when he was the Vikings head coach was he, the second contract players he signed uh, were often the second or third most sought after player at the position and ended up being the best. Vasante Shanko over Daniel Graham was another one where he got Shanko for half the price of Graham and Shanko was far better. Uh, Bobby Wade, for example, is another one who you know led the Vikings in catches for two years in a row uh, and wasn't all that expensive, you know, Childress had a lot of flaws, but one of them was, you know, one one of them was not player selection. Yeah, um, and it really speaks to even today. A lot of times, the best free agent on the list is not always necessarily the best player to sign. In part because why is the guy's team letting him go if he's <laughs> still? You know, like they know more than you do. Uh, Eric Eager, PFF uh, Forecast Podcast, one of my favorites. You guys gave an extensive. Cam Newton breakdown, if you are interested in hearing that with you and uh, George Shahuri, that signing. And, well, let's hope that uh, we get football, Eric, and everything goes off on time because we are getting closer to actually starting to break down as opposed to, and I really enjoyed this, as opposed to let's look back at what happened, break down what's going to happen very soon. I hope that that happens. Yeah, I'm excited um, and hopeful. Follow him at uh, PFF underscore Eric, and we will talk to you again soon here on Purple Insider.